the religious section of a newspaper uh, received this letter to the editor. I quit going to church this year. I decided that listening to sermons week after week was a stupid thing to do. After all, I went to church for more than 40 years during my lifetime, and I probably heard 5,000 sermons. I can only remember about five of them. What a waste of time. Bored and busy. Did any of you write that? <laughs> I hope not. Another reader soon responded, I quit eating this year. Thanks to Bored and Busy's insights, I decided that eating week after week was a stupid thing to do. <laughs> after all, I've been eating for more than 40 years, and during my lifetime, I probably have eaten 5,000 meals. I can only remember about five of them. What a waste of time, signed bored, or excuse me, starved and stupid. <laughs> this brings up the fact that messages from God's word are like meals to our soul. That's how I think. As I'm working throughout the week and studying the scripture and asking God for insight and wisdom, but first to apply it to myself and then knowing I'm going to share it with others. It's, I'm thinking of myself as a chef, in a sense, preparing a meal for you. And I know I've got all the best ingredients, so, so I know there's a good chance you will be nourished in your soul. Just as the physical food nourishes our bodies, spiritual food, God's inspired word, Nourishes the person that lives inside these bodies, the Bible calls tents. Strengthening our love, relationship with God and others. In terms of our body, you've probably heard it said, we are what we eat. The food we digest is broken down and the nutrients are absorbed into our body. And our cells, our living cells, are regenerated. And so literally, those nutrients that we're absorbing into the body, they become our body. We are what we eat. In terms of our spirit, that invisible part of us that relates to God, as we feed upon the Word of God, that love relationship, our spiritual life is strengthened and we are transformed or regenerated from glory to glory into the image of Jesus. That's what we're about. This is what we see happening today in our ongoing study of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes form the introduction of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be looking at that for a while. But the Beatitudes are just eight blessings for the believer it forms the introduction. The word beatitude comes from the Latin word beatus, and I mentioned this last week. It means happy or blessed. Eight times Jesus refers to an attitude or attribute of the believer that makes for a truly happy life, both in this world and the world to come. So this is important. We covered three last week. Poor in spirit are blessed, it says in verse 3. For only those who recognize their spiritual poverty, that they can't earn God's favor through their 
good works, that's something that every man-made religion attests to. Only Christianity comes with a poverty, a spiritual poverty. Only those that do so are candidates for his priceless forgiveness and friendship. Then in verse 4, we learn that that, uh, those who mourn are blessed, happy. That is, those who react to sin and its destructive influences with a godly sorrow. When we see sin demonstrated and, and flaunted, we just don't become numb to it. Our heart breaks over it. And we have a godly sorrow and we mourn. That enables us to then turn to God and be comforted. And finally, we saw in verse 5 how the gentle or the meek are happy or blessed because the life of God in them, the Spirit of God, set them free from the tyranny of self. I mean, self-ruled. In other words, they were then led by the Spirit of Christ and reflect Christ, the meekness of Christ, the gentleness of Christ, which is power under control. We looked at all three of those. If you missed that, I encourage you to go online. Our technicians are, you know, they're editing and rendering those um, in the archive there on our homepage. So we encourage you to get it all, precept upon precept. So now we're going to consider the fourth beatitude, the fourth blessing of the growing believer, the child of God. Verse 6 of Matthew 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Righteousness is, is being or doing right before God. For instance, when we offer up our bodies a living sacrifice, as it says in Romans 12, that's the righteous act. He alone is worthy of all our praise and worship. And that's what Romans 12 says worship is, offering our bodies a living sacrifice, giving all that we are and have to him. He says that's our spiritual service of worship. When we do that, we're we're engaging in a righteous act because it's the right thing to do. But all our righteous deeds, Isaiah says, are as filthy rags. They were an abomination to God until we become righteous. See, all the man-made religions say, if we do these things, we become righteous. And we make God our debtor. But God says, all those things that they're doing to try to earn favor with God are, are odious to God. An affront to God. Because they dare to believe that in their own goodness, they can somehow approach God and be acceptable. He says it stinks and will always stink. It's a dead, stinking end. All our righteous deeds are as filthy rags, Isaiah says, until we become righteous. In other words, God is far more interested in who we are than what we do. Because he's always looking at the heart. 
Not the outward manifestation of some vain glory going on. Until our hearts are cleansed by receiving the righteousness of God by faith, that right standing with God by faith, until we do that, we have no hope of pleasing God or being acceptable to him. These are the basic components of the gospel message. The righteousness of God that we are to seek first. Yeah. Jesus said you have to seek first his righteousness, this right standing with God. In other words, to hunger, these are the, this is what we are to hunger and thirst for is Jesus himself. He's the righteousness of God. He's the one that has provided us that right standing with God as I trust in him who bore in his body my sin upon the cross. I'm robed in his righteousness. It's a biblical expression. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord, Isaiah said. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. You know, Paul said to the early church, he said, I have determined to just know one thing among you, and that is Christ and him crucified. If you wonder if we preach the gospel here at Calvary Chapel Eastside, that's all we preach. <laughs> but it's forever new and transformative, and it's what we need. More than my opinions on current events, we need Jesus. To have no desire for intimacy with God in this way is as dangerous as the loss of physical appetite. You know, if you're not hungry and you just push, you know, you have no desire to eat, something's wrong, right? You, you are in the danger zone. You got to go to the hospital and they got to figure out what's wrong with you because you're on a, on a, on a path of death and destruction. And if we, des if we don't have this sense, this desire for intimacy with God, we are too in a dangerous place. Only when I hunger and thirst for this kind of righteousness, this kind of nearness, this relationship, do I have any hope of being satisfied, of being healthy and whole in my inner person, the core of my being, in my soul? Remember the woman at the well? She tried to find satisfaction in this life through romance, through companionship. She had had five husbands. That's a lot of husbands. You know, this is like getting up to like actress and actor's level. Right? <laughs> That's a lot of husbands. Jesus said, you've had five. The man that you're living with and fornicating with now is not your husband. She had an unrealistic expectation that another human being could satisfy the deepest cry of her heart. 
which is to be perfectly loved. That's the deepest cry of our heart. There's nothing that will stabilize a person more than knowing we are completely and perfectly loved. And that's something only God provides. Jesus didn't condemn her, but he reached out to her in, in love with these words. He said, everyone who drinks of this water, in other words, everyone who looks for love in all the wrong places, they're going to thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give them shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give them shall become in them a well of water springing up to eternal life. He's referring to the only truly source of renewable energy. That soul-satisfying effect which comes and is sustained when we give Jesus first place in our life. He will come and he will make his throne there. And up from deep within us, this well of water just springs up until eternal life. Talk about sustainable energy. All we have to do is give him the throne. Give him first place. What a soul-satisfying effect. When knowing and following Jesus becomes our master passion, many of the meaner, hurtful passions lose their grip. They just can't hold on to us anymore. They don't master us. They don't rule us anymore. What Spurgeon calls the craving of lust. Pornography, does that have a hold on you? Sexual immorality? It's something that you just struggle to, ah, it just overwhelms you. He says the craving of lust, the greed of avarice, the passion of hate, the pining of ambition, all lose their grip because we are in the grace and grip of the Lord who alone can cleanse our conscience and satisfy our souls. But it takes more than a casual interest in the things of God. I know some people, you know, they they come to church on Sunday for three cents worth of God. And then they leave and they forget all about him. I've done my religious duty. I think there are many people in churches all over the world that have that idea that, you know, it puffs them up a little bit. They become kind of self-righteous because I went to church. I saw some empty seats there. So there's some sinners out there that need to repent and get serious with God. William Barclay describes it this way, this beatitude. He says, the hunger, which this beatitude to describes is no genteel hunger which could be satisfied with a mid-morning snack. The thirst of which it speaks is no thirst which could be slaked with a cup of coffee or an iced drink. It is the hunger of a man who is starving for food and the thirst of the man who will die unless he drinks. 
Does that describe us in our relationship with God, our desire for God? That's what Jesus is saying in this beatitude. It's the man or woman who searches for God with their whole heart that Jeremiah says finds him. That's just finding him. It's got to be a wholehearted effort, half a hearted effort. You're not going to find him. And once finding him, continually feeds upon this manna from heaven. This is the person, Jesus says, who will find true and lasting satisfaction. Not the one content with three cents worth of God. This is a strange filling. You you read it again. It both satisfies and keeps us longing for more. Blessed or happy are those that have this hunger because they will be satisfied. Well, if you're satisfied, then you're no longer, there's no the hunger. You can't have both at the same time. And he says, this is kind of the ongoing condition of the growing child of God. The advancing disciple is both hungry. They have an earnest desire for God while at the same time, mm, just being satisfied. By him. As Barclay points out in his paraphrase, William Barclay, Bible commentator, this fourth beatitude could read, Oh, the bliss of the man who longs for total righteousness as a, a that relationship, that intimacy with God, that right standing with God, as a starving man longs for food, and as a man perishing of thirst longs for water, for that man will be truly satisfied. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. At first glance, this appears to, to, uh, to make re- receiving God's mercy dependent upon our being merciful. You want God's mercy, then you're going to have to earn it. Well, we know that flies in the face of the doctrine of grace, which the gospel hangs on. Mercy, not getting what we deserved, hell, is unmerited just as grace, getting what we don't deserve, heaven, is unmerited. Titus 3, 5 states that he saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in in righteousness, but according to his mercy. We cannot earn mercy, forgiveness, reconciliation, friendship with God. But once we have freely partaken of it, by faith, open wide and say, God, fill me, then we are prone to extend the same to others. For as Jesus taught, the one who recognizes that they've been forgiven much, those are the ones that love much. It's just kind of a natural outworking of knowing that you've been forgiven much. You become very merciful toward others. David was constantly marveling at the, at the mercy of God. This is King David, the shepherd king. He's the one in Psalm 8 that, that, that just kind of wonders out loud. I'm so glad he did. What is man? What is man? Because I know man, I know myself. What is man that you are even mindful of him? 
that you would waste a thought on him. And the Son of Man, what is all of humanity that you would care about them? He was greatly and intimately in touch with the mercy of God. Of course, he would go on to conclude his 23rd Psalm. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me. A man in dire need of it all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I think because he was aware of God's unfailing mercy, he could be merciful toward Saul. Remember King Saul, if you were with us not too long ago, went through Samuel, especially the second book of Samuel. And we saw Saul betrayed Jesus, excuse me, David, not the son of David, Saul betrayed David again and again. He he hunted him like a partridge in the mountains, and he had done nothing to offend Saul. He had done nothing against, he loved Saul. But David, when he had a chance to end Saul, repeatedly did not take advantage of and, and, and sought to express his love and commitment to Saul. And I think that opened the door for all the mercy that David would receive in his life uh, to come pouring forth from the hand of God when David sinned in the worst possible way. God called him a man after my own heart, right? Okay, but he, he was also a murderer and an adulterer, potentially having even performed forcing of himself sexually on a woman. God says, here's a man after my own heart. God is merciful. David knew it. He tasted of it. And it brought forth mercy in, his, in himself toward others. The French have a proverb, to know all is to forgive all. To know all is to forgive all. How many times have you adopted a merciless, somewhat merciless, say, or critical attitude towards someone, uh, their, their either perceived or real flaw? You see them, man, they're, they're just uh, driving me crazy. I just don't like what they're doing, the way they're acting, their, their personality. And then you learn something about what they've endured, something about their life. You put yourself in their shoes for a moment, and suddenly you find available to you a much more patient love for that person. You just need to walk a mile in their shoes. So this beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, could be paraphrased. Oh, the bliss of the man who gets right inside other people until he can see with their eyes, think with their thoughts, feel with their feelings. And he who does that will find others do the same for him and will know that that is what God is, what God in Jesus Christ has done.
right? It says that, that he humbled himself and divested himself of all his glory and came and lived right inside a human body to relate to us and to show us in this powerful demonstration the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. Let's look at one more beatitude, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The soul of a person is, is their invisible self. Right? It's the personality. Personality, you can't touch it. It's the invisible part of us. That's, that's our soul. It's a combination of a person's will, intellect, and emotion. It's their personality. That's their soul. The heart of a person is the center of their soul. It's the seat of their will, intellect, and emotion. The pure in heart, therefore, would not only be those who are cleansed of sin so that they're uh, you know, morally clean, but those who love God with an undivided heart, just as pure water is unmixed. You have a slide for me there? Just as pure water is unmixed, void of pollutants that would contaminate, the pure heart is unmixed in its devotion to God. It doesn't pollute itself with unholy loves, forbidden fruit, nor does it, nor does it nor does it desire any person or thing above God. That's the pure heart or pure in heart. Because I love God first and foremost. I can love my wife and take seriously my vows within the sacrament of marriage. Because I love God, I can love my kids and others, because God loves them. God so loved them that he gave them everything, died for them. Those whose hearts are completely his, those, in other words, who are pure in heart, shall find a greater capacity to love others. And, as the Beatitude concludes, they shall see God. They shall see God. For he'll prove himself strong on their behalf on a daily basis. They will see thoughts, words, and deeds that are being just downloaded from heaven manifest in our lives. He will guide their decisions, subdue their fears, fill us with all joy and peace in believing, use us to build his kingdom on earth. The pure in heart will see the outworking of God in their earthly lives until they see him face to face in heaven. Yeah, right? We're just visiting this planet. You need to remember that. Especially when it seems like the sky is falling. This isn't our home. 
And this life is like a vapor, James says. We need to remember that. All these attitudes and these attributes, this being merciful and pure in heart, they're simply the natural outcome of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Back to the first one we looked at today. When we recognize that the world's cisterns that promise to satisfy us, when we, when we recognize that they can't satisfy us, the deepest thirst of our heart, that is to be perfectly loved, and we feed upon the hope of Jesus and all of his precious promises, when we do that, then we discover once again, we are what we eat. Just as Jesus is merciful, by his Power, the power of his spirit working in us, we become more merciful. Because Jesus is pure in heart by the power of his spirit. As we feed upon him, we become more pure in heart and undivided in our devotion to God and satisfied. Only let us not settle for just a slice of God but reach out with both hands by God's grace for all of him. The way a starving man desires the whole loaf of bread, you know, good luck giving him a slice. He's going to grab the whole loaf, not just a bite. For therein lies the blessed life, the happy life, the satisfied life. Blessed, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, this right standing in this relationship with God because they will be satisfied. That's a guarantee from God, from heaven. It's time to go go to the bank and make that withdrawal and make it our own. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, right now, just the voice of Mick Jagger is in my ear. I can't get no. This is a double negative. Please forgive him. Satisfaction. He was just being really honest. He's tried this and he's tried that. Like so many in this world, Lord. We've looked everywhere. We've looked for love in all the wrong places, like the woman at the well. But come to us, Lord, as you came to her, with words of life, and that this promise of, of a thirst slaking inner life it would well up within us to eternal life. Humbly, I ask for myself and for everyone here and everyone listening online. It is what we need. Without you, we can't get no satisfaction. That's a veracity. That's a, that's a solid truth, Lord. 
So create in us a desire, an earnest desire, a hunger and a thirst for more of you, Lord, more of you. If you're listening to my voice today and you realize that You've been wallowing in unbelief and, and there's, a, there's a spiritual malnutrition going on. But there's something that is prompting you to, to, to just to grab hold of the whole loaf and to drink deeply of God's provision in Christ, a Savior. I want to pray with you. For those that have never done it or those who need to do it again. Because you need a refreshing of God's presence in your life. Doing it the first time brings you into the body of Christ. Whenever we do it thereafter, it's just a refreshing of His presence in your life his outpouring of his strength through our weakness so whether it's the first time or the next time you can pray in the quiet of your heart with me God I I, I understand I've, I've been looking for love in the wrong place and as a result you've sent leanness to my soul but right now Lord I I open wide. It's just like that, that baby bird in the nest when the uh, parent comes with a worm. They open their mouth as far as the mouth was designed to open. They, they just, they, and they, they tremble and they say, feed me! Lord, feed us. Feed us now the word of life. Soothe our soul. Nourish our spirit within us. That you'd be glorified in our bodies. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.